Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. How are you guys this morning? Yeah, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's official now. We have the tree up here. I know some of you guys don't like Christmas trees. Guess what? They don't like you. But you think about it, sometimes people have a point, right? Like you bring this thing into your tree, you make it the center of attention, you dress it up with lights, and then some people stand around and sing songs to it. Oh, Christmas tree. Oh, Christmas. <laughs> Not of us, but there might be people on the podcast that have been tempted to do that at times. And you might understand why people would think that's a little weird. Um, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit lately, and it's, it's kind of turned into a series of messages. I want to keep going in, in that same thread this morning um, about just being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Last week, we talked about the fact that the disciples were in the boat with Jesus. He said, let's go to the other side. Because the things that they had seen him do hadn't changed the way that they thought, hadn't transformed them, their minds hadn't been renewed, they, they found themselves in this place when he said, beware the leaven of, Fer- of, of Herod and the Pharisees of, of going, oh no, it's because we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, why do you reason that you have no bread? And was like, why would that come into your thinking? How much do you have? Well, we have one loaf. And Jesus' way of thinking was, if you saw me take five loaves and feed thousands, why would you ever find yourself again in a place where with one loaf you doubt my ability to feed a dozen? Because he didn't just do the things that he did so that we would have a cool story to tell and walk away unchanged. He did the things he did so that the way that we think would change. So the next time we find ourselves in a situation rather than scrambling and panicking, we actually think differently because we've been transformed. And so the same thing happens then with the, with, the, with, the, uh, with the storm, right? He says, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. They have what the word from Jesus. I don't want to preach the whole message over again, but I want to set context because what we're about to talk about piggybacks off of that. They get out into the middle of the lake, away from shore, and a storm comes. Jesus is sleeping. Why? Jesus is very unconcerned about the storm. He's very unconcerned about the storm. He's not unconcerned about them. He's unconcerned about the storm. A lot of times we think that he doesn't care about our circumstances. It means he doesn't care about us. It's that he's not really worried about the things that come that have nothing to do with the things he's spoken to you about. Because a lot of times we give a lot of attention and focus to things that have nothing to do with his plan for our life. And the enemy is happy to just keep stirring up storms and keep causing problems and keep bringing things against you so that even though you feel like you're doing good things, you're distracted constantly by the, what the enemy's doing in response to God's call on your life rather than responding to his word and his call on your life. Jesus knows, I'm going to the other side. Why? Because the Father told him to go. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. These words I say are not my own. The things I say I've got from the Father. So what was it? The Father said, go to the other side. So Jesus says, let's go to the other side. So when a storm comes, it doesn't matter to him. But he loves the disciples. He'll meet you where you are, but it's never his intention to become the divine janitor that runs around cleaning up messes. It's his intention to make you like him so that you see beyond the mess and above the mess and you find yourself in a place where you could sleep in a storm that once made you think that you were going to die. So they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? That we're going to die? 
It's not that he doesn't care that they're going to die. It's that he knows that they're not going to, so he has very little care for them dying. Now, if I came to you and said, don't you care that my skin's turning purple and that I've grown to be eight foot tall? You probably wouldn't care because I'm not purple. I'm not eight foot tall. It's not that you wouldn't be concerned about me, but you would be very unconcerned about the things I was describing to you. And so they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And he says, no, I, I don't really care that you're going to die. What I care about is this. Why is it you still have no faith? Why is it you find yourself in a position where when something happens, you immediately forget what I have said and put your attention on something that has nothing to do with what I've told you? I never said, let's go to the middle of the lake and drown in a storm. I said, let's go to the other side. The storm has nothing to do with my will for your life. And the fact that I'm sleeping doesn't mean I don't care about you. It means I don't care about the storm. And anything that he's not focused on should be something that we're not focused on. Because when we take our eyes off of what he told us and start focusing on all these things, we find ourselves in this position where we start to doubt and we start to base our well-being and our, circu- and our, our abilities on the circumstances around us. So they can't do anything but that. And, and, <clears throat> and I said this last week, and I just want to really quickly clarify before we jump into this week's message. Is I said that, that sometimes in our lives... We look at running to him and praying, which is what they did. They ran to him and had a conversation with him. That's what we call prayer. As a symbol of faith. And I'm not saying there's, not, not some, there's, there's something wrong with when you find yourself in a situation you don't know what to do, just saying, God, help. There, there are other times. There's times in my life where I just, I don't know what to do. I don't have, I don't, or I don't remember in the moment a word from Him that sustains me through the storm. But I'm saying that sometimes Jesus doesn't see that so much as a symbol of faith, but He sees it actually as a lack of faith. Because He takes them, waking Him up, not, He doesn't say to them like, wow, guys, this is awesome. You finally reached that point where when a storm comes, you know to turn to Me. He doesn't say that to them. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is expected. When he gave them that word, there was an expectation that that word would actually change the way that they think. When they saw him and the way that he lived, there was an expectation that it wouldn't just become a story of who he was. It would become a a, a way of thinking about who he actually is. And that they would take more than just bread from that, that circumstance. They were supposed to take way more than just a loaf from that circumstance. They weren't supposed to take just one loaf of bread from what Jesus did. They were supposed to take the knowledge of who He is and His heart for them from that so that the next time they find themselves in a situation, rather than needing bread, they understand we have who we need because He's with us. And so He he says to them, He says, why is it that you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? And He doesn't congratulate them and say, wow, you guys have really arrived. You've learned to turn to me. And again, hear my heart. I'm not saying that it's not okay to pray and that that's a lack of faith. What I am saying is that sometimes he would love for us to be so sustained by the word that he's given us that when a storm comes, rather than panicking and thinking that he doesn't care, we are so focused on what he said that we can't even think about what he hasn't. I thought so. Me, Patty, and Scott, and Jenna Moore. Um... So he calms the storm because that's what he does. He's good. He loves us. Listen, he's not going to turn this into like a spiteful thing where he's like, well, because I told you that we're going to the other side and you woke up. You don't have faith. You're just going to die here in the middle. He doesn't do that. He's not vindictive. He's not spiteful. 
but he really wants them to get it because he knows that I'm not going to be with you forever in person. You're going to have to learn that the peace that I've given you is enough for every storm that you face. And at some point, I want what I say to you to be the thing that you focus on. I want the word that I gave you, the instruction that I gave you. I want what I spoke over your life to be the thing that keeps you rather than me having to come and bail you out in every circumstance. Because why? Because there's a time coming where you're going to have to have this for other people. And if you can't for yourself see that as the answer, how can you possibly see it for other people? If you need me to come and bail you out every time you're in a situation, what chance is there that you can actually be the answer when someone else is in a situation? This is the whole point. He wants to reproduce himself in them so that they can reproduce themselves in others. That was always what he wanted. It's always his goal. And so he calms the storm. They go to the other side, and we pick that up in, in Mark chapter 5. You can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, we'll spend most of our time in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. Um, it's a really interesting story, um, and I don't know that I've preached on it here. Um, so now the, they've, they've, the storm's been calmed. Jesus has been the hero. They're, of course, g- still going where he said that they were going to go as they come to the other side of the sea duh of course they did why wouldn't they Jesus' instructions were let's get in the boat and go to the other side the natural response to obedience to him is that you end up where he told you to go it's always the natural response it's always the natural uh, um, the way things unfold is that if i'm being obedient to what he said i'll end up where he told me to be and so they, it says, when they, they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. He began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it is that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. These who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. 
God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is as real and alive today as it's ever been. God, that as we read from your word and we study from your word, that we're actually transformed. God, never let these stories become just a story. Never let them be something that encourages us about who you were, God, but always let them be something that encourages us about who you are and who you will be. I thank you for that, God. I ask that as I speak, Holy Spirit, you speak through me what you would have us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus and his disciples get to the other side, which is where Jesus wanted to go all along to begin with. And as soon as they get to the other side, they become confronted by a man who is demon-possessed. Now, this is not like a man who's just kind of oppressed by demons or being influenced by demons. This is a man who is full-on possessed by the enemy. You ever wonder if the enemy didn't cause that storm to come because he didn't want Jesus getting to where the man was that he had a stronghold in. You ever wonder if sometimes things happen when you're trying to meet up with somebody or when you feel strongly in your heart to go talk to somebody or God keeps bringing someone to your memory and you want to get together with them and something keeps coming up that keeps that from happening. You ever wonder if maybe there's a truth that you carry that the enemy is trying to keep from reaching that person? And sometimes we we let the storm be something that keeps us from actually going and doing the thing that we felt called to do rather than seeing it for what it is and saying, I'm not going to let a storm keep me from going where I know He's called me because there's something there. He didn't just call me to... Jesus didn't say, let's go to the other side just so we can get in the boat and leave. He said, let's go to the other side. Why? There was something there that he wanted to do. There was something that God had for him. When you feel called to a place or you feel called to a person, don't ever let it be just a thing where it's like, well, I mean, I guess whatever. No, realize that God's probably calling you there for a purpose and for a reason. And don't stop until you see that purpose or that reason fulfilled. Don't let a storm come against you stop you in that season. Stay faithful. And realize that sometimes storms come because we live in a fallen world and storms happen and sometimes storms come because there's an enemy that wants to keep you from where you're going. Either way, keep going if he's given you a word. And so they get there and they see this, this man and you got to picture like this is not just like some dude, you know, like we, you've seen someone then and probably and you thought, wow, that was kind of demonic. Like they freak out or, you know, they just act in a way that's completely irrational. Or whatever. This is a whole different level. This is a guy who runs around with no clothes on, gashing himself with stones and screaming in the graveyard where he lives and in the mountains. And everybody in the area knows about him. Everybody. I mean, you can imagine if there was someone doing that out there in the front yard, like we'd all know about it pretty quickly. Word travels. And they would go out and try to bind him with chains and shackles. And it says he would tear the chains apart and break the shackles to pieces. This was demonic level possession on like a really high level to the point where he actually was empowered and strengthened by the demons that were inside of him. And it's something I just, as I was reading this, I thought, you know, we should really be careful that we don't always attribute strength to anointing. Because sometimes someone could be really strong or really powerful, and the, and the strength and the power isn't coming from God. That's why Jesus said you know them by their fruit. Check the fruit of it, because the fruit of this guy's strength, the fruit of this guy's power was actually destroying his own life and causing fear in everybody around him. It wasn't making him more like Jesus, and it wasn't bringing anyone around him to Jesus. 
Check the fruit. Don't be enamored by someone who walks in strength or walks in power if the fruit is everything but what you see the fruit of Jesus' life to be. And watch their own life. I'm not saying that we sit around like critiquing. I'm just saying that if there's somebody who's walking around in a high level of power or strength, look at what they leave in their path. Look at what follows them. Because Jesus said these signs will follow them that believe, and he lists some things that are pretty amazing. None of them was they'll destroy themselves. None of them was they'll live in a way that causes everybody around them to be terrified. Now, I'm not saying there won't be times where people around you are terrified when you're living the way God's called you to live, but I'm saying watch the fruit over a consistent period of time. And so, Jesus comes out, and he, he walks up to the man and says he'd been saying to him, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And the man comes and falls at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says to him, what is your name? And the demonic presence speaks and says, we're legion, for we're many. A Roman legion, a full Roman legion would be, from what I looked up, like about 7,000 soldiers. We know there was at least 2,000 because they went into 2,000 pigs. That's the number given. Who knows, maybe there was, you know, three and a half demons per pig. But there was a couple thousand of them. And Jesus asks, what's your name? And I think sometimes we read things, and because we want to make a formula out of things, we latch on to certain things. And this is one that I've seen latched on to a few times and I've encountered people that, that, that believe this way, and, and, you know, whatever, that's whatever it is. But I don't think Jesus was asking the demon what his name was to give us a formula that says if you don't, if you don't know what the name is, you can't cast the demon out. A, this is the only time Jesus ever did it. B, there's no instruction anywhere that tells us to try to figure out the name of the demon, ever. You won't find that in the Bible. You won't find that in anyone saying you have to do this, otherwise you have no authority over it. I, I promise you, like, so it's got to be in here for a reason. So I was thinking about that. I'm like, I wonder why. As I was digging this, I'm like, why did, why did Jesus ask this one person? Because, you know, the, the Bible says that if, if every thing that Jesus did was to be recorded like we couldn't the volumes couldn't hold it all so when things are recorded they're significant and when something happens one time it's really significant so I started like just asking myself and praying and asking God why is it that you asked him this one time and it was recorded for us what his name was why was that important in this case and I came up with two things I feel like the Lord showed me um and and this was the first it says, when he, sees Je- when he saw Jesus, he came over and bowed down before him. So here's a man who is so strong, he can't be bound and can't be brought into submission by shackles, chains, and strength of man. Yet even thousands of demons can't keep him from coming and bowing at the feet of Jesus when he sees him. Maybe one of the reasons Jesus asked him his name was so that everybody there, especially his disciples, would see that the number of them is rather insignificant compared to the power that's in me. I was talking to Dylan about this, and Dylan looks across the table at me and says, yeah, that kind of takes away our excuses, doesn't it? Because nothing could keep him from coming to the feet of Jesus and bowing down. Not even thousands of demons. 
He wasn't even born again. What can keep you from coming to Jesus? What can keep you from bowing at his feet? Your schedule? Your hobby? Your phone? What excuse would we have if we stood next to this man who was possessed by thousands of demons when he says, when I saw him, I ran and bowed at his feet. If that couldn't stop him, what excuse would I give? Now take this into consideration. You've got the Spirit of God inside of you that's urging and compelling you, if you're listening, to be at his feet and to bow before him and to worship him. You don't have thousands of demons trying to keep you from it. You have the most powerful spirit that's ever existed and ever will exist trying to lead you to him. There's nothing that can keep you from Jesus if you want to be there. The other thing I think was it was just for the disciples and for our sake. See, the Bible tells us um, that, that all Scripture was given for teaching and for correcting, for rebuking. And it says that the old is an example for us. And always in the natural, God was trying to show His people that numbers didn't matter. He wanted so badly for them to be impressed with His power and His presence and not with their numbers and not with the numbers of the people that they were fighting against. Over and over and over again, you see, to, to the point where one man with a jawbone kills hundreds of soldiers. He's in the na- See, first the natural, then the spiritual. Paul writes that in Corinthians. And so he, what, in what he was displaying in the natural, Jesus confirmed in the spiritual realm. What was displayed so powerfully in the natural realm in the Old Testament, Jesus displayed so powerfully for us in the spiritual realm. And that was this. It does not matter how many of them there are. It matters whose authority you're under. This is what the Roman centurion got that Jesus was so impressed with. Because Jesus says to him, he says to Jesus, no, you don't even have to come to my house. I too am a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and I say to that one, come, and he comes. What was he saying? He's saying, listen, I know how this works because I'm under a great authority. So I'm under Caesar's authority. So when I speak, it's as if Caesar himself speaks. And it doesn't matter if I have more people than the people I'm commanding because it's the authority that I'm under that actually gives me authority over the people that I'm over. And And Jesus was like, wow, greater faith. What's he saying? You get it. You understand it. That's what faith is. Faith is not looking and saying, well, we can take them because there's 700 of us and there's only 699 of them. He was saying, listen, you get it. You understand. It's not who you are. It's the authority that you're under that gives you authority. And one man can say to 7,000, he could say to a legion of troops, go here and do this. He didn't have to have 7,000 of him. It wasn't like he said, and if you don't, All 7,000 of us are going to take on all 7,000 of you. That wasn't it. It was because of the power and authority of Caesar that he was able to speak and they obeyed. 
And Jesus is modeling and demonstrating the same thing for his disciples and for us. It has nothing to do with how many of you there are. We don't have to gather 700 people. I'm not against gathering to pray. That's awesome. But what I am saying is if we think that we have more authority because there's more of us praying, then somehow we've missed it. Because Jesus didn't say to the disciples, there's thousands. I might need some backup, guys. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying together. There's nothing wrong with praying together. I'm not, hear me, listen. I'm not saying there's something wrong with gathering and praying. They gathered and prayed in the upper room under Jesus' instruction. But what I am saying is, if we ever start to put our faith in the number of people that are praying versus the one who's answering our prayers, something's wrong. And we will not have our prayers answered because of the number of people. We'll only have our prayers answered because of faith in the one who answers them. And Listen, this is what Jesus is showing them. He didn't turn to the disciples and go, ooh, Because he's not impressed with the enemy. Maybe this is why John, as an old man, feels compelled to write to the church that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Because he wants them to understand why. Because he watched with his eyes as the greater one spoke and thousands moved. He didn't turn around and say, guys, We're taking on a big one here. Listen, this is not me saying don't have people pray. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that we got to be careful and make sure that our faith stays in the one rather than in the many. And he he didn't turn and say, okay, guys, I need everyone to fast and pray because we're taking on a big one here. Why? Because he's so confident in the power and authority that he carries because of the authority that he's under. He's under the authority of God. He's been given authority over all things. And so he's so supremely confident in that that he understands. If I speak, they have to listen because they are a lesser power. When When powers collide, the greater power speaks and the lesser power obeys. It's just the way it works. Let that shape our theology when we find ourselves facing things. Listen, you can get 700 people to pray and then you walk into a room full of unbelief and nothing happens. And you could turn around and look at all 700 people and say, where's your faith? It has nothing to do with the people praying's faith. It has everything to do with, do you carry the authority of the kingdom of heaven and do you believe it? I thought so. I did. I was stoked when I saw this stuff. Come on, Dylan. So watch what happens. Oh, I got my notes out of order. Jesus says to them, "Come out." And they say, "Can we go into the into the pigs?" And you know, people have made a lot about, you know, why did he send him into the pigs and all that stuff. I honestly don't know exactly why he sent him into the pigs. There's people that think that, well, it was because it was against the law for Jewish people to keep pigs, and if they were Jews, they shouldn't have had a herd of swine. They were breaking the law, so he cast them into there, and they went into the sea because he was condemning what they were doing. Um, there's other people that just think that he was showing that pigs were unclean. I, I honestly don't know the exact answer to that. There's probably people who studied it. They're way smarter than that stuff than me. But either way, it ends with the enemy plunging off a cliff inside of screaming pigs. It's not a good end for the enemy. 
And so here's, so here's what happens. News of this starts to spread. It says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been, in, been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. So they come to Jesus and they see this man who formerly wasn't clothed, who formerly wasn't in his right mind, who formerly lived in there, who formerly they tried to bind with chains and bind with shackles, who destroyed their chains and their shackles. They see this man and they, they, you would think the natural response would be, wow, this is amazing, and to give glory and honor to God. Listen to me. Never ever be shocked when God does something in your life and people who don't know Him the way that you know Him don't respond the way you think that they would respond. Because otherwise, you'll start to think, what did I do wrong? Maybe you did nothing wrong. Maybe people are just so unused to seeing the power of God actually change somebody that when it does, they become afraid rather than wanting to worship. Listen, I saw this happen in my own life. Because I got changed like that. Now, I mean, I'm still in process, trust me. I'm not saying that, you know, in an instant uh, everything was, was done away with, but in an instant I went from who I was to who I am. In an instant, every single desire for the way that I lived prior to that moment was gone and a new desire filled my stomach. In an instant, I went from living for myself to knowing there's someone greater than me that I had to live my life for. In an instant, I never wanted to touch another one of the things that I touched before. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's not to say that, you know, that that doesn't happen sometimes and people fall back into things. There's grace for that. And that doesn't mean that you weren't really delivered. Just sometimes, you know, we go back to things and we go back to them, we go back to them. Sometimes that's why Jesus said, forgive your brother for the same thing. 700 times 7 things. What's he saying? Forgive him 490 times. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, the 489th time, you don't have the right to say, I've done it 489 times. He's saying, you hope and believe all things and say, say this time will be the time that they actually change. Why? Because you always believe that the power of God is greater than the power of the enemy in someone's life. And the minute that you stop wanting to forgive somebody is the minute you hold the right and reserve judgment over their life. And you're denying his power. Then you have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof. Don't ever forget that Saul was Saul until he was Paul. He wasn't Spaul for a while. He wasn't. He wasn't on probation. He was in the minds of the disciples and they missed out on receiving from him for a little while until Barnabas came and convinced them of who he was and that he was legit. But it was nothing to do with the fact that Paul wasn't changed. It was everything to do with their minds actually hadn't changed the fact of who he was and they still saw him for who he used to be rather than who he is. But here's the thing. If it happened to Jesus, I promise it will happen to you. And so the power of God shows up and radically transformed this man's life. And it's a physical outward change. He's clothed. You understand when someone used to run around naked smashing rocks into their skin, when you see them sitting quietly at the feet of someone clothed, you know there's a change. It's not like, hmm, something's, something's different. <laughs> Did you cut your hair? No. Is it glasses? No? Hmm, I don't know. I can't put my finger quite on it. But so, No! It's, you used to run around like a crazy man screaming in the mountains cutting yourself naked. 
Now you're clothed, you're not screaming, and you're sitting still. You've changed. It's not hard. It's very evident. And yet, they become afraid, and look what they do. They said, it says, and they began to implore him to leave the region. You want to know one of the saddest verses in the Bible? To me, comes right after that. It says, and so Jesus, as he was getting into the boat, to leave. So there's a miraculous deliverance, and yet the people want the deliverer to leave. And here's the, here's the saddest part about this to me, is that we have to be really careful the judgments we make towards what God's doing or towards a move of God, because sometimes he'll honor our request, he'll honor our judgment, and he'll quietly get into the boat and leave. Well, that convicted me when I was reading this. My God, I don't ever want to, like, just because I don't understand something or just because something makes me a little bit afraid or I get a little nervous, I don't ever want to make a judgment that causes you to say, okay. And it made me realize our judgments carry way more weight than we understand because in that moment, they had no idea that they were telling the Messiah to leave. They had no idea they were telling the one they needed to leave. And it says, and Jesus, as he was getting in the boat to leave, the man came and asked him if he could go with him. What does that mean? It means Jesus looked at them when they said, will you leave out of fear? And he said, okay, I'll go. He didn't argue with them. He didn't fight with them. He just turned around. And I would imagine with sadness, left. Guys, just be really careful. I'm, pre- I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody in this room. Just be really careful the judgments we make towards the move of God simply because it's not something we've seen before or it's not something we understand. So, here it is, verse 18, as he was getting into the boat. Why was he getting into the boat? He told them, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Because he set one man free. And because it didn't lead to others wanting, he actually honored their request and left. He would have stayed if they wanted him to stay. How do I know that? Because when he talked to the woman at the well, and she went and talked to her city about what happened, and they came to him, and they listened to him, It says he was going to leave, and they urged him to stay, so he stayed with them two more days. What was he saying? I'll stay wherever I'm welcomed, and I'll leave wherever I'm not. This is Jesus, guys. This is the one who came to give his life for these people. This is the one who loves them more than you and I could ever love somebody. He comes to two different cities. He performs a miracle of someone's life being transformed in both cities. And in one, because they don't understand what's happened, they allow what they don't understand to bring them to a place of fear. And they ask him to leave. They reject him. They turn on him. And they say, we don't want this. We don't receive this. He just turns, gets back into the boat, and heads off the way that he came quietly. On the other, people come They see what He's done to this woman. And even though they don't understand it, they don't reject it. And they come to Him humbly to find out who He is, who is this man, and how is He doing these things. 
and said he was going to leave. Yet they urged him to stay. So he stayed for two more days. What made him leave or stay? Come on, it, it says why he stayed. They urged him to. I would imagine the same thing is the reason he left. Because they urged him to leave. What if our judgments are far more powerful than we realize? And God will honor the things that we ask for. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. Listen to this. And everyone, and everyone was amazed. Everyone was amazed. So he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, don't, don't come with me. I, I'm, not, I'm not staying here. But somebody has to be here that believes. Somebody has to be here to open their mouth and proclaim who I am and what I've done. See, here's, here's something I, I, I saw when I was studying this out. is That, you know, miraculous suddenly things are awesome. But sometimes the miraculous suddenly thing leads to more miraculous suddenly things. But sometimes the miraculous suddenly thing that God does has to be actually lived out and modeled before people before they'll receive what they wouldn't have received before that. Because the people of that region wouldn't receive from Jesus Himself after hearing about a miracle and a display of His power. But what they would receive from was the one who went and lived in the fruit of that and proved that it was more than just a momentary thing. That there was actually something that was real that was deposited in Him. And the people who knew Him before couldn't deny the who He was now. And it says, and everyone was amazed. And here's something so beautiful. Mark chapter 7, verse 31 says, And when he went out to the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis, where did he say that the man went and began to proclaim what Jesus had done for him? Chapter 19, or verse, I'm sorry, verse 20. says, And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Mark 7, a few chapters later, And when he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis, they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. They went from imploring him to leave to imploring him to lay his hands on him. Why? Because the testimony of one person whose life was changed by God that actually lived in the fruit of what happened rather than it just being a momentary thing that was forgotten after the man of God left. Come on, you guys, listen to me. Every single one of us that's born again has had God do great things for us. Every single one of us has experienced His mercy. This is what Jesus said. He said, listen, I, I'm not going to stay here. What did Jesus tell the disciples? It's better that I go. What was He saying? He saying, listen, I've deposited something in you that I entrust. There's something in you that I've entrusted to you 
Go and take that to the places that you lived. Why? Because when the people who knew you see who you are, they won't be able to deny, even if it made them afraid at first. I experienced this in my own life. I, when God changed my life, I remember people actually saying and mocking what happened. I remember I got asked to speak at a church right away when, when I first got born again and I first was up here and there was kids who were struggling with stuff and they said, why don't, you, why don't we have Roy come and speak to them? And I heard someone say with their mouth, what's he going to say? Find a girl you want to impress? so that you stopped doing the things you were doing? I didn't even know her at the time. But I heard someone say that. And I heard a bunch of people laugh about it. I promise you those same people wouldn't say the same thing now. 20 years later, when I'm more in love, and I still have a return to the things that I got set free from. See, the end suddenly didn't change everybody, but it changed me. But the fruit of my life lived will change the people that watch my life. And I'm not frustrated because everybody didn't fall on their knees and say, what must we do to be saved the first time I shared the gospel? Why? Because I believe that if it's really real inside of me, that every, eventually people who are around me will see Jesus enough to want him for themselves. And everyone will be amazed, not at me but at the one who changed me, the one who saved me, the one who showed me his great mercy. Listen, we, we pray, guys, like right now, so many of us are praying more than we ever have for the power of God to be on display in our lives. We want to see people set free. We want to see people healed. We want to see all that stuff. But listen, Jesus performed a miracle, and yet there was no fruit besides one person in that time. But yet when that one person who was impacted by the miracle went out and lived in the fruit of that suddenly, a whole city changes. Everyone is amazed. And now when Jesus comes back into town, they actually seek Him out. And they implore Him to touch them. What did they say to Him the first time He was there? They implored Him to leave. Now they're imploring Him to touch them. Why? Because they've seen the fruit of someone's life who was actually touched by Jesus. Never ever underestimate the power of your life lived in the power of what God's done in your life. Every single one of us, every single day, goes out into the world and we declare the goodness of God and His mercy by the way that we live or we deny it by the way that we don't. It's one or the other. And that's not to guilt any of us. That's to say, listen, if he's put something inside of you, Christ in you is the hope of glory. But it says what is seen is no longer hoped for. And he said that men would see your good works. So it's not meant to just be hope forever inside of you. It's meant to be seen so that it's no longer hope. It's actually experienced and felt. Come on. We've got to take the whole counsel of Scripture when we read these things. You can just take a, a verse that says, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and ignore the verse that says, what is, hope, what is seen is no longer hoped for. They have to work together. They have to complement each other. So in other words, Christ in you is the hope of glory, but Christ out of you and displayed, men would see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So it's no longer supposed to just be hoped for. It's actually supposed to be seen so that hope becomes something tangible that people can see and touch and experience for themselves and that's your life lived declaring the greatness of God and the mercy that he showed you come on father I thank you for this word I thank you for who you are God I just thank you that every single one of us has received from you God that we've all been touched by you that we've all experienced your goodness God whether it was a suddenly thing or whether it was a gradual revelation and one day we looked back and realized whoa I'm no longer who I was or we woke up one morning and realized we're not who we were the day before no matter how we got here we're here God 
and we have something to share with people. We have the hope inside of us because it's you. And God, I pray that we would release that hope wherever we go. I thank you that you're greater than anything that we face, God. God, that we don't have to figure out what we're against. We have to remember who we're for. God, that we don't have to figure out the name of a demon. We just have to know the name of the one who's greater than all. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that would embolden us. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.